0: man it's so great to celebrate that jesus sets people free amen amen Amen. well this is our freedom sunday service i'd like you to turn today to proverbs chapter 14 we're going to be looking at verse 34 And it has become kind of our tradition here at Calvary Vista on the Sunday before our 4th of July to um, take a break from our normal study. We're going through the book of Acts right now, so we'll be picking up that picking that up next week, but to take a break and to really celebrate the freedom that we have in this country, and also to celebrate the freedom that we have in Jesus, because Jesus is the only one who can really transform a life, a family, a city, and a culture, amen? Amen. He's the only one that can do that. And you just heard some quick testimonies of nine different people whose lives have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. But you know what? This room is filled with hundreds of transformation stories, and we love to celebrate that. And we're going to do that today. At the end of our service, we're going to partake of communion together. And so we're going to celebrate the work that Jesus did on the cross. You should have received one of these uh, when you came in today, a little pack with the wafer and the juice, and and we're remembering today that when Jesus was on the cross, he he gave a victory cry when he yelled out, "It is." Finished. And what he was saying is the work of redemption is finished. The work of making a way for men to be right with God is finished. It was completed through his death on the cross. And we're also going to celebrate today through baptism. As we have some people who have signed up to get baptized and they're declaring their allegiance to Christ. They're declaring and celebrating the life that they have in Christ. And we're going to celebrate what? with them as we watch them uh, get baptized today. But I'd like you to turn to Proverbs 14:34 here, and we read righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Proverbs 14:34. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so thankful today. For the freedom that we have in this country, the freedom to worship you so freely, the freedom to preach the gospel, the freedom to gather like this, Lord, this is something that we do not want to take for granted. As we know, many of our brothers and sisters in other countries do not have this freedom. But Lord, more importantly, on this, on this week where we are celebrating our nation's independence, we celebrate the independence, the freedom that we have because Jesus Christ came to set the captives free. And so, Lord, today I pray that as your word goes forth, that, that you would teach us, that you would speak to us, that you would do a work in our hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. Yesterday, I got roped into coaching my grandson Josiah's bitty ball basketball team. Now, if you don't know what bitty ball is, bitty ball is for five to seven year old kids who don't know how to play basketball. They don't know how to shoot, they don't know how to dribble, they don't know how to stand, they don't know how to pass, and they have a very, very small attention span. So it results in one hour of mass chaos, but it's also fun and entertaining. Now, I went there yesterday to watch my grandson play and to cheer him on, but but as I was just trying to help a couple kids who were having a hard time, the mom who was, you know, chosen to be the coach came up to me and says, "I have no idea what I'm doing. Would you please coach the team?" I was tempted to say, "Well, the kids don't know what they're doing either. You'll fit right in." <laughs> But I thought that's not what Jesus would do. So I said, okay, I will coach the team and uh, thought I was going to lose my voice in the process, but I did okay for service. So, but you know what's happening in our country today, the mass chaos that we see in our country today resembles what was happening at the gym at Bringle Terrace yesterday, mass chaos. Chaos, But what's happening in our country is not entertaining or fun in any way, shape, or form. It's downright frightening and very, very frustrating. It's no secret that America is in decline. But something I remind you of often, as the Lord has allowed me through ministry travels to visit 37 different countries around the world, I can tell you this firsthand, America is still the best place on the planet to live. And we need to remember that. We need to celebrate that. But we are in decline. And so here's what I wanted to, want to do today. I want us to briefly consider three things. I want us to consider how America was started. And then I want to look at, at where we are at right now and how did we get here. And then I want to finish up by talking about how we as followers of Jesus Christ are to be living in this current cultural moment. So how did everything get started here? Well again look at our text in Proverbs 14:34 we're told that righteousness exalts a nation and one of the reasons why America, in such a short period of time, has flourished as a nation to become one of the major superpowers in the world, I mean, think about it, we are only 247 years old, and you compare that with some of the other superpowers, like China, which is 3,500 years old, or Russia, which is over 1,000 years old, or the UK, countries like England and Germany that are part of the UK are over a 1,000 years old, it's pretty incredible when you think about the prominence that we have gained in such a short period of time. Why is that? I think it's because of a principle that our country was founded on, and we still see it inscribed in our currency. It's that phrase, in God we trust. That has been the core foundation of this country from the very beginning, that it was founded by a group of people who had great allegiance to and who were trusting in God. In fact, did you know that the Bible is in the cornerstone of the Washington Monument? The cornerstone, the word of God. The cornerstone is the chief stone. If the cornerstone is the reference point. If the cornerstone is right, then the rest of the structure will be right. And our founding fathers placed a Bible in the cornerstone because they wanted to build the foundation of this country upon the word of God. So at the very bottom, at the base, is the Bible. At the very top of the Washington Monument is inscribed these words in Latin, "Los Deos, which means praise be to God. Now there are those in institutions today, educational institutions today, that are trying to rewrite our history, and they say that the majority of our founding fathers were atheists and deists. Now we know what an atheist is, somebody who doesn't believe in God. A deist is someone who believes that God created us, but then left us on our own. But I want you to listen to some of the things that some of our founding fathers wrote concerning our country. Let's start with our first president, George Washington. He said this, while we are zealously performing the duties of good citizens and soldiers, we certainly ought not to be inattentive to the higher duties of religion. To the distinguished character of patriot, it should be our highest glory to add the more distinguished character of a Christian. Now, some Christians today in, in our culture, in the church, they, they've reversed that. They've placed a lot more focus on being a patriot than on being a Christian. But George Washington said that our Christian character is the most important and it should shape our patriotism. What about John Adams, our second U.S. president? He said this. Suppose a nation in some distant region should take the Bible for their only law book and every member should regulate his conduct by the precepts there contained. Every member would be obliged in conscience to temperance and frugality and industry to justice, kindness, and charity toward his fellow men and to piety, love, and reverence toward almighty God. What a utopia, what a paradise would this region be? Adam said, if people would just live according to the Bible, the world would be a paradise. What about Thomas Jefferson, our third U.S. president and drafter and signer of the Declaration of Independence? He said this, I am a real Christian, that is to say, a disciple of the doctrines of Jesus Christ. What about Roger Sherman, a signer of the Declaration of Independence and and of the United States Constitution? He said this, I believe that there is only one Living, true God existing in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, the same in substance, equal in power and glory, that the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are a revelation from God and a complete rule to direct us. And how we may glorify and enjoy him. Sherman seemed to understand that the whole purpose of mankind is to enjoy God and to glorify God. Let me give you another, Benjamin Rush, another signer of the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution. He said this, the gospel of Jesus Christ prescribes the wisest rules for just conduct in every situation of life. Happy they are who are enabled to obey them in all situations. What about Benjamin Franklin, another signer of the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution? He said this, here's my creed, here's what I believe. I believe in one God, the creator of the universe, that he governs it by his providence and that he ought to be worshipped. As to Jesus of Nazareth, my opinion of whom you particularly desire, I think the systems of morals and his religion as he left them to us is the best the world ever saw or likely to see. Let me give you one more. This is Patrick Henry, the ratifier of the U S constitution. He said this, it cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded, not by religionists, but by Christians, not on religions, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. For this very reason, Peoples of other faiths have been afforded asylum, prosperity, and the freedom of worship here. Does that sound like a bunch of atheists and deists? No, not at all. Truth be told, a careful study of our history will show that 52 of the 55 signers of the Declaration of Independence were men who were devout... Orthodox believers in Jesus Christ. They were not just religious people, but they were believers in Jesus Christ. They weren't men who were perfect. They were flawed, but they were men who were seeking to base what they believed on the Bible. In fact, some political science professors at the University of Houston, they were considering why the American Constitution has been able to stand the test of time and and why it hasn't gone through massive revisions in 216 years. And they wanted to know what possessed those men to produce such an incredible document. So these professors at the University of Houston spent 10 years cataloging 15,000 writings of our founding fathers. This is what they found. They discovered that 34% of the founding fathers quotations were direct word for word from the Bible. And another 60% of their quotes were taken from other men who were quoting the Bible. So 94% of the our founding fathers quotes were taken directly from God's word. Amazing, right? This is the, the point I'm making is that the, our, our nation, our founding fathers were men who believed in God, who trusted in God, who believed in the Bible. And they used that belief in the founding of this nation. And I think this is one of the reasons why our country in such a short time has risen to such prominence. But unfortunately we have strayed from that foundation. Look at our text again. Proverbs 14:34 Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And right now we are suffering the reproach because of our sin. Our foundations have been destroyed. What happened? Well, the Apostle Peter, writing to the early church, he prophesied that problems would come that would erode the purity of the early church. This is what he said in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. He said, but false prophets also arose among the people, pointing back to the history of the people of Israel. Just as there will be false teachers among you, Now, what Peter predicted is exactly what happened to the early church false teachers came in with destructive heresies, and people with wrong motives and and greed pursued evil. So by the time we get to the book of Revelation, 65 years after the birth of the early church that we've been studying here on Sunday mornings in the book of Acts, 65 years later, Jesus writes seven letters to seven churches. And this is what he said about several of them they were there were major problems the church in ephesus had left its first love The church in Pergamos had become carnal and worldly. The church in Thyatira had become off doctrinally to the point that it was infiltrated by idolatry, sexual sin, and pagan traditions. The church in Sardis was completely dead, and the church in Laodicea was lukewarm to the point that Jesus said of them that you guys, you're being lukewarm, you you make me want to just vomit you out of my mouth well what happened to the early church has also happened to america it's just taken longer destructive heresies have infiltrated our culture to the point where we have denied the lord jesus christ we have forsaken the teachings of the word of god and motivated by greed and sensuality we have deified man and devalued god And the result of that is this. Our nation is $31 trillion in debt. Our nation is plagued by violent crime. Our nation is plagued by by drug addiction. Our, Our nation is plagued by pornography and plagued by sex trafficking and plagued by child abuse. And now there are people who are confused about sex and gender. Why? Because we've completely abandoned the Bible. We've turned our backs on God. You know, Isaiah the prophet had this to say about the nation of Israel. He said, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And that was written at one of the lowest times in the history of the nation of Israel. Well, guys, we are living in those days, aren't we? where people are calling good evil and evil good and light darkness and darkness light. Isaiah went on to say, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. What he's describing there is the mentality of people who say, we don't need God. We don't need the Bible. We'll just do what is right in our own eyes. Well, that's exactly what man has been doing from the very beginning. It started in the garden, right? It started there in Eden when when the devil came and tempted Eve and said, did God really say? And what he said, he didn't really mean. You're not going to die. You're actually, you're going to be like God. And Eve and Adam, they took of that forbidden fruit and they disobeyed and they rebelled against God And this has been happening over and over and over again, every single day in every single nation on this planet. And right now we are seeing the consequences of that. Now, the tendency of a lot of Christians, when they see how far our nation here has digressed, they're tempted to pray in this way. Lord Jesus, come quickly and come and judge all. All of these sinners, please don't say amen to that. Because that is not the right attitude that we are to have, my friends. Let me ask you this. What did God do when man rebelled in the garden? I mean, he could have obliterated them. He could have said, you know what? I'm going to get rid of Adam. And Eve. I'm going to make two more new people. And I'm just going to keep doing this over and over and over again until somebody gets it Right? but he knew no one's going to get it right. Even if two did get it right, someone else would come along who would get it wrong. And what happened when Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, that sinful nature entered into the human race. And so what did God do? God devised a rescue plan that he would send his son, Jesus. That Jesus would leave heaven and come to this earth to rescue man from his sin and his shame and his guilt. And that Jesus would crush the head eventually of Satan. And he would do that in order to set us free. And to make a way for man who was separated from God to be brought back into relationship with him. Guys, it's so easy to look at what's happening in our culture today and think that evil and darkness is winning. But to think that way is to assume that God is no longer on the throne or that God has no clue in what he is doing and that he is devoid of all power. And we know that that is not true. What we are witnessing today, though, is exactly, listen close, what God said would happen in the book of Romans when people would forsake Him, when they would turn away from Him, when people would begin to worship instead of God our Creator, they would worship creation. They would devalue God and deify man. God said, this is what's going to happen. In Romans chapter one, verse 24, it says, therefore God gave them over. And Paul's going to repeat that phrase three times that God gave them over in sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. What Paul goes on to describe there is homosexuality and lesbianism where men and women would turn away from what what the Bible says, what God would say there in Romans was natural or the natural normal way that God designed sexual relationships to take place between a man and a woman that they would turn away from that which is natural to pursue what is unnatural that men would burn in their hearts toward other men and women would burn in their hearts toward other women. And because of this, Paul would go on to say, and God gave them over to shameful lusts. That God would give them over to pursue their fleshly, immoral desires. Basically, God was saying this. If this is how you want to live, go for it. See if it fulfills you. See if it it, it does, because he knew it wouldn't. Paul would continue, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. So again, God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they would do what they what ought not to be done, and they became filled with, get this, every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. He's including there every type of sin. God gave man over to his own fleshly lust, and the result of that is what we see in our culture today rapes, murders, adulteries, violence, evil, lying, gossip. That's what he means by every kind of wickedness. But here's what we need to understand. God gave them over to these sinful desires and he describes them, notice, as degrading, shameful, deprived, depraved, wicked. That's God's description, not mine. But we need to understand the reason God was giving humanity over to those to pursue those fleshly desires was twofold. Either man would come to their senses and see the futility and the emptiness of those pursuits and they would turn to God and many of you in this room that's your story that's your transformation story you were going down that road many people on the video that was their story they were going down that road trying to fulfill themselves by satisfying their fleshly lust and realizing that it was just empty and so they turned from their sin and they turned to God and God forgave them and he restored them. And that, that's, that's part of the purpose. God's saying, look, if that's where you want to do, go for it in the hopes that we would like the prodigal son come to that place that in the pig pen, we would come to our senses and realize this isn't working. I need God. Or the second reason is men would be sealing their own judgment and fate. By their choices. So, in essence, God was saying, I'll let you go down that path and experience the pain and the emptiness and of sin and rebellion so you can see where it leads. In hopes that you would turn from your sin and turn to Jesus and receive forgiveness and reconciliation and salvation and freedom. And there's so many people today, right, that are looking for freedom. But Jesus said, Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. And he who the son of man has set free is free indeed.' And that's what God was hoping for. And even today, if you're here today and, and you don't know Jesus, And you're experiencing the emptiness of living for yourself and living for your sin. Listen, God has been patient with you because he loves you. And he wants you to open up your heart to him today to receive the forgiveness that comes because Jesus died in your place on the cross. And he rose again from the dead after three days in order to give you his life. And if you're here today and maybe you've been that prodigal son or daughter and you've been just living in rebellion, know this today, God loves you and he's desiring today that you would come to your senses and realizing that the life that you've chosen isn't going to satisfy you, but Jesus, he will if you come back to him. So we see how Things started. We see how we've got where we are now. Thirdly, let's consider how we as followers of Jesus are to be living in this cultural moment. And the solution, the answer to that question is really simple. You might want to write this down. Do what Jesus did. And do what the early church did. Now, one of the things that I want to just point out, though, is that we need to have a big picture perspective. And here's what I mean by that. We need to understand that we here in America are not alone. We need a dose of reality that what we are experiencing here in America, the rest of the world has been dealing with this type of depravity, this type of digression, this type of turning from God, the rest of the world has been dealing with for a really, really long time. Go, go spend some time in the UK. Go spend some time in Canada. Go spend some time in Australia. Go spend some time in Africa and you will see how far they have digressed, how far, how far ahead of us they are in their digression. We also need to have a big picture realization and perspective that what Jesus faced in his lifetime and what the followers of Jesus that we're studying here in the book of Acts, what they were up against is far worse than what we're experiencing right now. Let me give you a couple of examples. In the Grecian world that preceded Jesus, but was still a major influence in the world when Jesus came into uh, this world, this was the Grecian perspective and their view of marriage. The Grecian world said this, we have wives to bear us legitimate children families and to keep the house and we have concubines to take care of our personal needs and we have mistresses for our sexual pleasure that was the prevailing thought in the grecian world as it related to marriage and family life how twisted is that and on top of that, when Jesus comes into the world, when he's born as the the baby in the manger, Rome was in power, and this was the Roman view of sexuality. In the Roman world, there was no heterosexual homosexual, or homosexual distinction. Men especially, but not exclusively, had sex with anyone they desired, female or male, some preferred females, some males, some both. That's the world that Jesus came into. That's the world that the early church was birthed in. And it was a world where Rome were the oppressors, where Rome was abusing people, where great injustice was taking place. That's the world that the apostle Paul was ministering in. So here's the the question. What was their collective approach? Hear me on this. They didn't make their main objective to condemn the ills of society. That's not what they were preaching about. Their objective wasn't to go around condemning slavery or condemning homosexuality or condemning all of the the injustices. Nor did they make it their aim to undermine the government. Their primary objective was to go after the souls of men and women by preaching the transforming message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because they believe this, the gospel transforms lives. And people who have been transformed by the gospel have a transforming effect and impact on their communities. And So that's what they were focused on. That was their intent. Remember Jesus in Matthew chapter 5? He he taught this. He said this about us, the church. He said this about his followers. He, He reminded them. He said that you are the salt of the earth. And I remind you that in that culture, salt had three primary uses. It was used as a preservative. They would pack their meat in salt because they didn't have refrigeration. They didn't have freezers like we do today. It was used as a healing element that they would put salt on wounds in order to bring healing. And it was used the same way that we use it today as a flavor enhancer on food. So when Jesus calls us to be salt, when he says you are the salt of the earth, he's saying that you are to be the preserving, healing, and flavor-enhancing agent in the world. So yes, we have a role in being that preserving influence in the world. And that' why that's why I'm a hundred percent behind our Impact North County team that seeks to educate us on bills that we need to oppose, and bills that we need to go against, uh, and bills because they're bills that go against the truths of the Bible. Bills that seek to undermine our moral values that the Bible puts forth. And praise God, we are living in a country that is a democracy where we have the right to vote. We have the right to raise our voice and vote down those type of things. We need Christians today who are running for office At the federal level, the state level, the county level, the city level. It's why I brought John Franklin, who is now our mayor, up before you all to pray over him because he's a Christian man, a man who loves Jesus. And and, and I'm glad he got elected. You need to continue to pray for him, he's up against so much opposition. It's why I fully support Christians running for school board and city council and those type of positions. Because in all of that, those are great ways that we can be that preserving element in our culture. In a society that is becoming more and more pagan and more and more godless by the day. A society that is starting to resemble what the early church was up against. Under the Roman Empire, a society that is quickly catching up to the decadence that has plagued Europe and Canada and Africa and Australia for decades. We need that preserving influence in our city. But hear me on this. Listen close. Getting the right people in office, getting a bill overturned, reversing Roe v. Wade. We definitely need to celebrate those things. But listen to me, those things, those victories are only delaying the inevitable. What? What do you mean by that? Listen, as I read my Bible, my Bible makes it very, very plain that leading up to the days before Jesus comes back for his church, And definitely the days leading up to his second coming, things on this this planet are not going to get better. They're going to get worse. That's what the Bible teaches us. It's going to get more evil, not more good. It's going to get darker, not lighter. It's going to become more godless and, and less godly. Now, does that mean that we just give up? And wait and pray for jesus to come no we fight we vote we make a stand we pray for revival i'm praying that god pours out his spirit afresh we need that but i'll tell you this i agree wholeheartedly with what Uh, David Gusick said in a podcast interview I did with him last year, we were talking about revival. We're talking about, you know, how the Bible clearly states in the last days that we're going to see things getting worse. And so I was asking him, how do you think revival fits into that? And he said this, I thought it was so profound. He said, I think in revival, what we're going to see in the last days is that the darkness is going to get darker And the light is going to get lighter. There's going to be more of a distinction and more of a contrast. And I could not agree with that more. That that's what we're going to see. If God would bless us and pour out his spirit, the the distinction, the line drawn in the sand is going to become more pronounced. The the light is going to shine, but the darkness is going to be, be even darker. The Bible is clear. That what we are seeing right now is what the Bible says would be happening in the last days. And the big picture for us is this, that there are souls that are at stake. And that's why we must remember that being salt is not just being that preserving influence, but it's also being that healing and flavor enhancing influence upon our world. So that people around us who don't know Jesus, people around us who are hurting and fearful and frustrated, they need to see something different in us. And I love the fact that Jesus used the analogy calling us salt. It's a great analogy because you know, salt is only effective when it gets out of the salt shaker. Salt only brings healing to the wound when it can touch the wound. Salt only enhances the flavor of food when it touches the food. And that means that you and I who are Christians need to get out of our Christian bubbles and we need to interact with unbelievers. So I ask you this question. Who are you touching? Who are you rubbing shoulders with right now? It's a key question. Now, I'm going to say something right now that's going to upset some of you that okay? Do I, a, do I have permission to upset you? Yes? Okay. So all of you who are going to get upset right now, blame them because they just told, said I, I could do this. All right. Here's what I want to say. We like the idea a lot, some of us, of being that preserving element. We like that. You see, it's easy for us to yell and scream about the evil in our worlds and how evil it's getting. It's easy for us to yell and scream on social media. It's easy for us to yell and scream about how corrupt or godless our government is getting on social media. It's easy for us to post a video or, or write a blog or attend a protest or like somebody else's post. And feel good about ourselves. That man, I'm fighting the good fight. I'm being Saul. I'm being that that preserving influence by doing those things. That's easy, my friends. That's easy. That takes a matter of minutes. But what's a lot harder is to actually go into our world and engage with lost people. To befriend people who you don't agree with the way that they're living to befriend the homosexual, to befriend the person struggling with their sexual identity. That's a lot harder. That takes a lot more time. But can I remind you of this precious church? Jesus was called the friend of sinners. That's how they referred to him. Today, a lot of Christians are just repulsed by sinners. But that was not what Jesus portrayed. That was not the vibe that the early church was giving off when they were living in pagan Rome. What did Jesus and the early church do? They preached the gospel, they loved on sinners. Because they knew that the gospel and the love of God has the power to transform a life. And when it transforms a life, it's contagious. And it can transform a family. And then it can go from that family to another family. And eventually, it can transform a community. And that's what happened. And that's what it means to be salt. But it's also interesting that Jesus also called us light. He said, you're also, you're not just salt, but you're the light of the world in Matthew 5, 17. And as the light, what he was saying that as our lives and our marriages are to shine in the midst of the darkness, that we're to be like a lighthouse that's pointing direction to all the other boats that are in the midst of a storm, that we're out there shining, pointing it. Here's the way to happiness. Here's the way to fulfillment. Here's the way to peace. Here's the way to freedom. In fact, the apostle Peter encouraged us in his epistle to live in such a way that our lives would radiate hope. So much so that someone might come to you and ask you, hey, why are you so hopeful? Everybody around us is just so hopeless, but you are so hopeful. Listen, that only happens when you are living with Jesus Christ as the center of your life. And you know what, if people around us are not asking us that question, why are you so hopeful? Maybe it's because we're coming across just like everybody else, uptight and so frustrated, and they don't see anything else in us. Jesus said, you're the light of the world. And you know what, light can be either annoying or it can be soothing. How are you radiating? How are we shining Jesus? Are we radiating anger and fear and frustration? Or are we radiating a calmness and a peace and a hope? I'll close with this. Back in 2001, a series came out called 24. How many of you watched 24? Okay, 24 starred Kiefer Sutherland. He was this guy, Jack Bauer, and Jack was a special agent in the U.S. counterterrorism uh, department or unit. And 24 stood for the hours in a day. And so um, in each season, there was 24 episodes that represented that one day. And Jack Bauer would do more in one day to save the world than, than most people would do an entire lifetime. Well, my wife and I, we didn't start watching that show when it first came out. But somebody gave us a DVD set of the first three seasons for Christmas. And so we started watching it. And we immediately got hooked. And we'd be watching it before we went to bed, you know, at night. And it would be like 11 o'clock and the episode would end. And Denise would be going like, let's watch one more episode. We got to see if Jack makes it, you know, I'm like, going, babe, there's three seasons and he's in every one of them. He's going to make it, you know, we don't need to stress out. We can wait till tomorrow, you know, to see, because, because the, the entertaining part was not if he was going to make it, but how, how he was going to make it. Well, in a similar way as the church. We know how this story ends. And I'm not saying at all that what we're watching in our world is to be entertaining to us at all. It's not. There's people dying and there's great injustice happening and there's people being hurt all around us. But we know how the story ends. We know that Jesus is coming back. We know that Jesus is coming to the rescue. We know that Jesus wins. We know that Jesus is going to come and set up his kingdom, that Jesus is going to set things right, that Jesus is going to put an end to injustice. We know all of that. So we can live with a hope and an assurance that this story has a happy ending. And can I just remind you of this church? Jesus doesn't need our help in setting things right. Not at all. He's going to do that all by himself when he comes back. But the thing that he does invite us to help him with in this great redemption story is that we would play a part in bringing hope to the hopeless and healing to the hurting. And to impact souls with the transforming message of the gospel. And to shine as lights, radiating Jesus to a world that he loves. A world that he left heaven for. And for people who are just like us, who were lost in sin, that Jesus came and died for. To pay the price for their sins and rose again to give them life and freedom in his name. Jesus has invited us, church, to be champions of freedom by sharing the freedom that we have found in Jesus. Freedom from guilt and freedom from shame and freedom in forgiveness. And we're going to celebrate that right now. As we partake of communion together, I'm going to ask the band to come out. And if you want to break out your little communion elements, what we have here is the top of this little weight on this little thing is a wafer that represents the body of Jesus that was broken for us. If you want to take that out right now, I like to take mine and break it. It reminds me this is what Jesus did. When he went to the cross, pay the price for my sin and for your sin. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, he came and went to the cross to pay the price for your sin, to make a way for you to have a relationship with God, to know God, to experience his love. And he wants you to to enter into that today. This cup represents his blood that the Bible says that, that was shed to cleanse us from all of our sin, that we go from being unrighteous to righteous in God's eyes through the blood of Jesus Christ. And we want to celebrate that today. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, or if you're here today and you've played that prodigal son or daughter, and you realize that, that you've been living in the futility, the emptiness that, that is what sin brings, I encourage you today, right now, to simply turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. Turn from your prodigal living and come back home. And your heavenly father is just waiting to receive you today into his arms. Lord, we thank you so much for the freedom that we have because Jesus gave his life so that we could have life. That Jesus came and went to the cross to break the chains of sin and death and guilt and shame. Lord, we rejoice, we celebrate today in the freedom that we have.